Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, the lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We run courses and mentorship designed to help clinicians apply a person-centered approach into their clinical practice. For details on all our in-person courses this year, check out our website, tkex.org, and join our Facebook discussion group. So I'm excited to be joined by a special guest all the way across the other side of the globe. He's Keith (laughs) Meldrum. Uh, Keith is a civil engineer, technologist, and vice president of a heavy civil construction company in Kelowna. I'm hoping Mm -hmm. I'm pronouncing that correctly. Nailed it. Nailed it. Amazing. (laughs) And in British Columbia in Canada. So he's married, has a 29-year-old son and an Aussie Labradoodle named, what was his name? Parker. Parker. Yes. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Uh, he's also a persistent pain advocate living with neuropathic pain for nearly 37 years as a result of a near fatal car accident in 1986 at the age of 16. And we'll be discussing some of his journey and what clinicians like ourselves need to do more of to bring the patient's lived experience and their voice front and center to our approaches. So Keith, it is an honor to have you and I appreciate having you here. Well, thanks, Daniel. It's really an honor to, uh, to finally get this opportunity to connect with you and to have this conversation, conversation, pardon me, and and to uh, connect with the rest of, uh, of the group as well. So thank you for having me. Amazing. Thank you. And for the listeners who may not know you and, and shame on every listener right now who does not know you, but oh, wow. <laughs> what is your story? <laughs> So, uh, like many, um, you know, there's there's a lot of people. One in five is is the stat to say uh, somebody lives with uh, chronic or persistent pain, and I just happen to draw that short card. But um, the the short version, um, and and I think it is important um, every time we have these opportunities, have these conversations to to provide that story because it provides provides some um, context um, because people's journeys and and sort of introduction into persistent pain can be anything from literally they woke up one morning and they had back pain no you know no no pathology no injury no accident uh right through to a story like mine which uh in, involved a bit of an accident so um so this the story is important but it's less about the story and more about the fact that people have pain. But for me, I was um, 16 years old, uh, still living in British Columbia. I was in a, in a smaller town than I live in now, right, almost in the central part of the province. And um, despite uh, being raised by two amazing parents who were very um, clear about what is right and wrong, and I didn't do anything wrong, I went camping one night um, with friends from work. I worked in high school. I worked in a McDonald's, like many people do back then. And, uh, you know, always promised my parents that I would never drink um, uh, while I was 16. And the promises you make to your parents, despite being told to do otherwise, go out the window. So I the, the night that I was out, we were at the campsite, I did uh, consume a lot of alcohol, because um, that's what you do when you're 16, and you fall to just sort of peer pressure and stupidity. And then I got very, very little sleep, and I had to drive home the following morning. And I was I, like I, I knew I had to get back home, even though I had only about an hour or two, maybe two hours worth of sleep, because I had to work the next morning, so I couldn't be late for work. Because God knows, you know, you got to be responsible. Um, and what happened was a combination of of both the alcohol and the lack of sleep, and um, driving in a car that had created a warm environment because it was a cool, almost fall morning in in British Columbia. So I rolled up the windows and had the heater on. I fell asleep behind the wheel, and and as I was um, driving down the highway, the highway made this called a super elevated curve. It's where a highway banks and makes the big turn. And they're designed such in my world of engineering so that you don't pitch the car off the bank. Well, when you're asleep, you will pitch it over the bank because I didn't make the turn. I rolled the car down the bank and over ends. And I was only wearing a lap belt. It was an older car. Um, and the shoulder belt and the lap belt were separate devices. And I only put on the lap belt. And because I had um, soundly fallen asleep and slid down, the lap belt, instead of being on my hips, was across my abdominal wall, and the action of the car rolling end and over it, end over end, and me snapping back and forth over it, while it kept me restrained in the car, which is good because the door came off and windows exploded and all this funky stuff that you see in movies. Um, it all what it caused was uh, an extensive amount of internal trauma, where it tore through uh, my uh, left and right abdominal walls, through my stomach, large and small bowel, and just right into my stomach, and just kind of pulled everything apart and. Um, 
I lay there at the bottom of the bank of this highway. I was able to self-extricate by just, uh, the car was upside down and I reached up and undid the seatbelt. And in my mind's eye, and this is so long ago, I, I have this almost memory of a cartoon, like, you know, where in the cartoon they hang for a moment before they fall. That's, that's the way I remember. It's like, uh-oh, and then down to the ground I went um, and, and crawled away from the car, uh, what I thought was hundreds of meters away. And I'm told I made it to the back bumper before I was not able to move anymore. And um, so anyway, that was, that was my introduction. I was fortunate people saw me leave the highway. Otherwise you couldn't see the car at the bottom of the bank. And, um, that, that's where I would have, I would have died and not to be hyperbolic, but I was losing, losing most of my blood volume. I was pumping out into my stomach and, uh, but they were able to call an ambulance and get me to the hospital. Seven hours later, after the first surgery, they had me up in ICU for a couple of weeks. And one thing led to another after that. And even though they had done and continued to do a bunch of surgical repairs. I had to have a temporary colostomy and then it was reversed and I had multiple bowel obstructions and those were operated on. And then I had um, my left abdominal wall repaired with mesh because I don't have the abdominal muscles I need anymore. Even though they created, they, they did all of this amazing medical work and put things in and fixed it. I had pain all the time, like always. And it was quite a journey going through not the fact, why did I have pain? I just thought that somebody hadn't tried hard enough to fix me, but getting to a point in my life where I realized this pain's going to probably be with me for the rest of my life. And I can, I can stop fighting it and try and figure out how to learn to live better with it. Or I can, I can fight it. And it was a path that wasn't going so well. So um, yeah, that's kind of the reader's digest version of how Meldrum uh, introduced himself to the world of chronic pain. <laughs> Wow. That's, um, to, to say it was an experience is a, an understatement. So I appreciate you sharing that, um, I've had a, a lot of suffering during that time and a lot of ups and downs with your experiences, uh, personally, and also through the medical system. So I'm, yeah. I'm curious expanding on that. You, you mentioned that you had to get to that place of knowing that it was unfortunately going to last a bit longer than, than expected and, and wanted. And, of course, no one wants pain longer than mm -hmm. any time at all. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. what, what was that journey like initially with your experiences as, as, a, as, a, as a patient in the healthcare system? It was, um, it was pretty terrible. And, and a lot of it was on, on me. And it was also due to a healthcare system that, that to this day remains um, not uh, designed to be able to sort, support people that have have long-term pain. Hell, we can barely support people that have long-term other health conditions that we know well, cancer and diabetes, throw this thing in pain and everybody was like, oh God. So uh, the, the challenge that I had was, like I said, that, you know, after the accident and I had all these surgeries, I'm still in high school at the time. It was between my grade 10 and grade 11 a year. Um, and I was in and out of school and, and halfway through grade 11, they told me not to come back anymore. Like just stay home and get better because I was having multiple surgeries always had this pain and I kept, I kept trying to find somebody to fix it. And, um, I was also pretty mad looking back now, because I've become so enlightened looking back now, what I didn't realize is at 16, I was really mad that I had done this to myself. Like I had a lot of anger, um, over that. And underneath, um, that was this sort of almost pathological feeling that I needed to to not let this hold me back. You know, I had all these hopes and dreams as a 16 year old, because when you're 16, you're still going to figure out what you're going to be when you grow up and all that. And, and when your body gets ripped in half, um, it changes the trajectory of what your career path can look like. And I was really focused on not letting it hold me back. So I kept looking for somebody to fix me. Like I just thought the doctors hadn't done enough surgery or um, the needle interventions, they weren't trying hard enough. And like, because I just couldn't get it through my head, Daniel, you could live with pain, like forever. I, one of the surgeons, the surgeon who did my initial surgery, and then a couple ones after that, I remember being in his office one day, and I was in my late teens, I think maybe I was 20. And he said, I can't operate on you anymore. He's like, I, you know, like, if we cut you open, uh, I'm just, I think I'm going to make it worse. And he said, you know, you might have pain for the rest of your life. And I was just like, I mean, 20 years old. And I'm like, that's, I didn't even think it was possible. I thought it was not possible to have pain forever because I'd never been introduced to it. So I just thought, no, no, they're not trying hard enough. And then bookend that was my family physician who one day told me, 
And I quote, almost verbatim, what he said was, um, the doctors have fixed everything they can, and this is all in your head. So now, and when he said all in your head, we, we know it's not in the funky brain imaging neuroscience way that we talk about. He meant, kid, you're making it up. You're nuts. And I was just like, now I'm doubling down on what's wrong with me. Like I did this to myself. Why would I make this up? Why would I continue to go into the hospital, have these terrible encounters in the emergency room where you have pain and everybody's looking at you like, oh yeah, sure you do. And, and then I, like, I thought I was really messed up. So my way of dealing with it was to put my head down and push and, and just get through it. I'm just, I'm going to just power through. Meanwhile, I'm going to keep looking for somebody to, at that point, it was mostly needle intervention, somebody to find the right block to make it go away. And I kept pushing and pushing and I kept making some pretty bad life decisions about trying to, to live with my pain because I didn't want to. Um, when I was 16, I always thought I was going to be a police officer. I wanted to join the um, Canada's National Police Force, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. It was something that was always very important to me. Um, after my accident, that probably wasn't going to happen because um, I was quite, uh, my, my, I was not physically capable. But I was able at 21 um, to join the Canadian military. There's a bit of a story behind that. I, I did not lie to the doctors. They had my medical case, but they still let me in. Because um, again, I'm going to show the world how tough Meldrum is. The pain's not going to hold me back, and that I can be a contributing member of society. And being one, um, you know, it was service to my country was always something important to me. So I joined the military. Um, I'm going to show the world how tough I am. I wind up having surgery while in the military. They opened me up because they're like, what the hell kind of mess did we get into? And why are you here? And I don't even fully recall what the surgery was. I just sort of collapsed one day in a physical training class and they dragged me off to a base hospital. And the next thing I know I'm being cut open and they're like, you're a, like, you're medically discharged. You can't be here. And so I'm just, I'm so angry and confused and underlying all of this is I, I can't live with pain forever. That's just stupid. Fast forward, and this is from 86 to 2004. In 2004, and in that time, I'm trying every intervention I can get my hand on, and they're not working. I'd get needle, I'd get nerve blocks, and they would last that long. You know, you're just hoping they would do something, and they really don't. And you'll try them again, hoping that maybe they would. And, and after one set of nerve block injections, um, it was paravertebral nerve block injections, which are a bit uncomfortable at best. They have to be done under guided imagery and they go in with a needle that I swear is about half a meter long. Um, it was the third time trying it and the anesthesiologist was a great guy. He just went a little deep and he popped my left lung. And it wasn't a full pneumothorax, it was a partial. And he was like, okay, you know, we're done. Um, this isn't really working. And now the worst has happened. We've actually caused you more harm than good. And he said, he was the first one who finally said, instead of saying, I can't help you, and then gave me no other path forward, he said, I don't know if you've heard about this thing called spinal cord stimulation. I don't, he said, I don't know if I'd do it. You might want to look into it. I have a long talk with my wife. We decide, God, we just got to try everything as long as it's not going to hurt me, even though I'm like, they're going to put something in my spinal cord. I don't know. Anyway, as I was having the intake with the doctor, because they have to make sure you're a candidate. So they have to screen you to make sure that you're the right candidate, because it's not a cheap procedure. And in Canada, thankfully, we have a socialized healthcare system, which means I don't pay for it out of pocket. They have funding to do this through the Canadian government, but they have to make sure they're giving it to the right patient. So as he's doing the intake, and I'm sitting there for probably like the 50th or 60th time in my life reciting my history. And he's sitting off to my right and I'm staring straight ahead and I'm answering all those questions and I'm kind of detached because I've done this so much and they're not really listening to me. They're just collecting history. We get partway through it and he stops talking. I'm like, here we go. I didn't make it through the, my first thought was I didn't make it through the intake. They're going to tell me it's all in my head. and I, This isn't, this isn't for me. And, and I, I look over, and his name is Dr. David Hunt. I look at Dr. Hunt. And he could see the look on my face. And he said, and he put his pen down. He said, it's okay. We believe you. And it was the first time from 1986 to 2004 that somebody 
actually said, your pain is real. We believe you. I had people do things to me, but nobody ever said, geez, well, this is real. And, and what can we do to help you? It was just like, oh, let's try this. And when it didn't work, I was kicked out to the street. That point of validation was the very, very first step of a long road because I didn't change overnight because I'm a bit stubborn to change my path of being able to look at pain differently. And that was, you know, we talk a lot in the world piece of persistent pain and in advocacy of that acceptance or willingness crossroad or point. And, and that was mine. That was the first time. And it still took me a long time, like a couple of years to get through it in my head. Um, where I'm like, okay, maybe this will be with me for a long time, or maybe it will be for the rest of my life. And all this fighting I've been doing obviously isn't working. Maybe I don't know everything, despite I think I'm so smart. Maybe I don't know. And I really need to look at this differently. And that finally allowed me to slowly start to look at things differently and say, what can I do to help myself? Wow. The power of that validation and that felt experience needed to then allow and facilitate the next step forward. So you're going down a certain path and that's, that says something about the, the way that we can respond to a person's lived experience and honor that experience and reflect it back and like, Hey, this is shit. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is real. And th those powerful words, I think uh, that's such a tremendous example that's needed to really hammer home the, the power that we have as uh, as humans to see another human rather than just intervening at them or like, you know, throwing everything at the wall to try and, you know, with well intentions to try yes. and reduce their pain. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I would never, I mean, nobody was ever, um, and I always want to make sure that, you know, my, my story isn't to vilify anybody at it all because they were all very well-meaning, but they, they deal with you, like you said, Daniel, in these sort of little snippets of time, uh, often you're seen just as a medical case. So as, I mean, the number of conversations I had with healthcare providers that was blocked by, because this is back in the old day, by the physical file, your chart sort of, you can't even see their face because they're looking and they're talking to you, but they're not talking to you. They're reading your chart and they're asking questions. So there is no connection there. So th that validation piece is, I've got a few soapboxes in my advocacy work and it's probably one of the biggest ones. That is one, and, and the number of people I've spoken to that had their own pain journey, that validation, however it comes, is often the most important turning point where somebody says to you, yeah, this is shit and it's real. And maybe I don't have all the answers, and all, but you know what? Let's figure out what we can do. But just to treat somebody like a human being and not a collection of their symptoms sitting in front of them in a in a medical office. Yeah, that's... um and it really helps to have the uh, appreciate you opening up to your story. Cause I think we need those stories to really cement home and, and paint a picture of uh, we could all be that human and pain can happen to, to anyone. So that, that humility, that humanity, and I, you wrote a, a blog post, if I am correct on, on humanity yep. and, and um, bringing humanity back into healthcare. I think that's a massive part of that, that, that need to see and acknowledge the human behind the diagnosis and behind the pain. Absolutely. And, and it's, I mean, that's, you know, we started a conversation off today and thank you for the lovely introduction. We talked about who am I? Well, you know, at the end, I'm a person who lives with pain, but everybody who lives with pain has a life. They're, you know, they're a, a brother, a sister, a father, a mother. They're all of these things. But unfortunately, that is all like reduced to nothing more than a, a patient with a set of symptoms in a healthcare system. And, and again, that's not to say that this is the fault of the healthcare provider. A lot of it is systemic, you know, it's just the way the system works and they don't have time to do things differently. So that's the work that we need to change bottom up, top down so that people are treated like human beings. And thank you for mentioning that, that post I wrote, it was um, published in, in the mighty, it was called this, you know, humanity and healthcare. And in that I talk about this concept, at least in North America, and I'm sure it's worldwide, goes back over 100 years ago. Dr. William Osler was a Canadian physician, late 1800s, early 1900s. And he's quoted as saying, and I'll paraphrase it, it's, and it's um, something to the effect that the, um, it's better for the physician to know what type of person has a disease than what type of a disease the person has. And that's all about, you're a human being with this issue going on. So let's treat you as the human, not just your symptoms. 
yeah, that's amazing. And I'll, um, I think I've shared it in our group already, but if anyone's interested, they can reach out and I can put it in a, in a footnote for this podcast episode because it was a great article. I think more Thank of that is, is needed. Um, and, and during this time, we've talked about uh, how you've been, you were treated with uh, in the healthcare system with medical professionals and the ups and downs and the positives and, and you know, less helpful aspects yep. of it. Um, <laughs> yeah. How were, what was it like with other people, um, like family, friends, peers with your pain? How did, how did you find other people responded um, outside of the medical context out of curiosity? Right. That I have to say, I'm incredibly fortunate. And um, part of that, a large part of that is, um, you know, I recognize that I have, I, I really um, come from a position of privilege in North America. I'm, I'm first of all, I'm male. I was male. I was white. Um, I was able to fight through my post-secondary education. I got, you know, I have a post-secondary education. So um, I was very fortunate that um, I, I wasn't immediately um, by, by society. I wasn't dismissed based on um, my gender, the color of my skin or my social status. And then I was extremely fortunate, like extremely fortunate to have such great family support. I mean, my parents were amazing. Um, it was tragic. My dad for years blamed himself for my accident. He always felt it was his fault. And that Daniel just, I mean, even to this day, I feel it on my chest. It tears me up. And my, and my father passed away last year. And I don't know if he ever over those years ever truly felt he wasn't responsible for it. So that was so hard on me, but they were always there for me. And then um, I had amazing friends. Like when I was in high school, because this all happened when I was in high school, I was in and out of the hospital all the time. I would have people come, my friends come to the hospital room and visit me. And I just, I had such care and support and love. And then when I got married, my crazy wife can't say she didn't know what she was getting into because she knew I had all these health issues and she still went along for the ride. And I don't know how many times she's taken me to the hospital or to, um, you know, appointments or whatever. So I have, I've never not had amazing family and friend support. And I can't even imagine what that would be like for people who don't have that. It's, it's, I mean, it's hard for me and I had everything going for me. Yeah. That's uh, really insightful to, to hear about the, the resources that you had to, to get you to where you are now, I think, and uh, the, the, the privileges uh, that are often invisible, I think, need to be acknowledged, mm -hmm. as well as the the care and love from those around you that kept you going. It sounds like very much a strength in their Absolutely. helpful resource to build upon, and then uh, have that uh, access to then change your trajectory and, and look at other resources or other forms of treatment. Um, yep. Yeah, and, and yeah, financial, I imagine, would have been an also Absolutely. and yeah, government you know, funded. You mentioned so all these. Yeah, factors. we're we're. We're fortunate, not like a other systems. I can't speak for them all, but um, you know, healthcare is not free in Canada. We pay for it in our taxes. But when I have my seventy-five thousand dollar Canadian surgical procedure for a spinal cord stimulator, I don't have to give them my Visa card or I don't get an invoice. I just walk out the door. But it has to be done in a hospital that's not in the city I live in. It's about seven hundred kilometers away. But um, Again, I have this extreme privilege where I had some issues with this implant system and I had to replace it. And I was given one week notice. They're like, we, somebody canceled, we can get you in. I booked a flight, I hopped on a plane, I was down there. So, you, you know, I could do that. Again, you take any one of those legs underneath those social determinant stools, and this is staggeringly difficult to deal with, let alone then being a woman or transgender or a person of color or, or like, oh, I mean, I, I get a little like look back and I remember how cranky I was about stuff. I had a lot going for me. And I, I always have to remind myself of that. <laughs> yeah. And I love that expression, the, the stools, the social determinant stools that keep you upright and, and that kind of safety net that we have and we don't really see and appreciate. Um, yeah. And, and absolutely not to invalidate all your experience and the suffering um, along with that journey. Um, I'm very curious to hear with your, you mentioned that trajectory post that um encounter with um the doctor who mm -hmm. for the first time you were believed yeah. what was it like from then onwards and and how did you get to towards that um acceptance for um you know which doesn't mean resignation and it doesn't mean giving up for the, right. for the audience yep. Um, yep. but towards that pain acceptance yeah was it like it was it was a slow process because i'm a little bit thick-headed um, but also 
Um, I, the one thing I, I didn't have the opportunity, um, I, I, there were, I was never offered and maybe they didn't exist. I don't know. Uh, but I was never offered like a, um, a, a pain education program, you know, where you sort of, you, you would have these kind of conversations. I kind of had to figure it out on my own. Um, and the trick, the trigger, one of the things that, that helped was um, when I was, so they determined that I was a, a candidate for a spinal cord stimulator, which for those that are listening, um, for people, it may or may not work. Every person's different. I don't get full relief from it. It's just one more thing that kind of helps take the hairy edge off of this stupid thing called neuropathic pain. So, um, but it, it, it helps. Um, but what I didn't know at the time was there was more that I could do. And they, they left a cassette tape. This is kind of old school technology. It was on relaxation and breathing and stuff like that. And I pushed it as far away as I could from me in my hospital. I was in the hospital for two weeks and I literally pushed it like, so I couldn't reach it because I thought it was a bunch of bullshit and that's that hippie stuff. And there's no relationship to any of that. Um, and a little bit of a funny story. Prior to going to the surgery, my wife said to me one day, she said, you know, Keith, your, your pain increases when you're under stress. We worked in the same office and everybody has stresses at their work. And I was going through a stressful time. And she said, your pain increases when you have stress. And I said that I said to her, it's impossible. There's no relationship between stress and pain. Well, how wrong could I have been? Right. So anyway, I'm coming near the end of my hospital stay and I'm kind of and laying there and lots of time to think. And I'm like, well, maybe I should just listen to this thing. You know what? You know, they've come this far and they've been that good to me. And the, the part, the only part that I listened to breathing. Um, thought, oh, okay. All right, I'll try it. Like, what have I got to lose? And so I started doing some of these slow control breathing. And you can, like, you can literally feel your body slow down. Your heart rate slows down. And I'm like, holy shit. And and having a bit of an engineering background, I'm all sort of sciencey and data, and like, hey, this is interesting. Maybe there's something going on here, which then caused me to want to start to research more Rebo. So then I started like, okay, I'll go out on my own. I'll start looking for articles and stories, or and I, I was not ever involved in research at that point. But coming from an applied science background, data has to be validated, right? Because the world I live in, we don't build the bridge right or the road right. Things collapse. So I'm looking for science. I don't want somebody's hypothesis or opinion. Um, so then I started reading more about you know, sort of breathing, which then led me to other parts of what now I've come to learn is, is self-management. And it got me to that point of, and, and again, it took a couple of years to get there. Um, but as you said, willing um, acceptance, or, or sometimes we term it as willingness. But again, it's not resignation saying there's nothing I can do, I can give up. It's coming to that pivotal point, pivotal part of me point and saying to yourself, okay, this could be with me for a while. And it could be a long while, possibly for the rest of my life, but let's not put a time limit on right now. What can I do to help myself to live better despite my pain? Because if it's going to be here, because I kept looking for it to go away. And to this day, we don't have a panacea. Um, so what can I do to make it better? And then I started learning things like, movement and exercise, which up to that point, I thought, well, that's bad because when I move, it hurts. And when it hurts, it must mean I'm doing damage to all of this trauma that I have in me. That means, oh my God, some, you're tearing something apart, Meldrum. So once I started to learn, you know, those simple things, hurt doesn't equal harm and how strong and resilient our bodies are. And if you move the right way, you don't hurt yourself. And then you get all these other benefits. And then I started bringing this all together. It was slow, but I kept seeing the benefits of it. And I was like, this is it. And then I got to this point where I'm like, well, shit, everybody's got to hear about this. We got to talk about this. We got to tell everybody. <laughs> so let me get on a rooftop and shout it. And, and by 2010, um, I was at a point where I was starting to look for organizations that I could connect with, where I could start, because I just felt compelled. I'm like, I was going down a really tough road. Um, I don't know where it would have gone. I, I don't, I, I really don't know. Um, there weren't days where I was ever suicidal, but there were more than once I said to my wife, I wish I wouldn't have lived through my car accident. So I was, you know, it's a rough go. But then once I realized I was doing things that started to change this path, I'm like, well, everybody has to know. That's just, we can't talk about it enough. And, but I mean, that's literally, that was a five or six year process from this might work to this is probably the best answer we have right now. So. Mm -hmm. Wow, the that take was almost another kind of pivotal turning point in your trajectory. 
the so yep. that you were provided the tape i imagine um it was like minimal um it, if it was a tape i'm thinking were there instructions was it kind of guided through or was it just like hey take this try it see how it goes and because they were so nice to you before that's that's why that was a reason that drew you towards it in the end finally oh you know i'll, I'll give yep. it a go was that the yep. You, you, you nailed it. Like normally I would have just tossed it in the garbage, but the, um, so I, I had the surgery in April of 2005 in November of 2004, when I had the validation moment with Dr. Hunt. And I, I mean, to this day, I will never forget that. So when I was in the hospital and even though I was saying to myself, this tape stuff is a bunch of bunk, I'm like, stop it, Meldrum, because they have been so good and kind to you. And Dr. Hunt understands. He said, we understand, we believe you. So I felt I owed them, you know, it, it was just time. I had, I'm just lying in a hospital bed. There wasn't a whole lot I could do. I'd get, get up and walk up and down the hall. So I needed to honor them by like at least listening to this. And and I vaguely remember, it was kind of a lot, but I sort of remember trying to make sure I didn't put blinders on. Like I didn't want to do it and just say, well, I listened to the tape and it was crap. I'm like, no, no, no. If you're going to do it, like keep, just, just try it. And um, yeah, and that, like I said, I mean, Step one was we believe you, and step two was, boy, this stuff can work. So, <laughs> yeah, and that provided that that real felt experience of, oh wow, this has an effect, and that was yeah. like a, a experience that you could then take to be curious and research more. And that's is that where you found the kind of pain science world? Yep. We'll say after that yep. that experience, I think before. Absolutely, yeah. I didn't under like I didn't know any of that. You know, my background wasn't in in the health sciences at all, right? You know, I, um, but it, I, you know, it was, it was even easy enough back then to start finding information. And I didn't know at the time, that's what I was reading was about pain science and, um, and just sort of the totality of pain and, and not knowing what I was reading. Cause it took me a long time before I probably came across an article that talked about sort of the, not sort of the biopsychosocial framework. And, you know, I started hearing those terms and then it really got me to thinking when I, I go biological, psychological, and social. And, and it took me a while because I had to be honest with myself. So like I said, for many years, I had a lot of anger about my accident. Um, looking back on it now, I had a lot of grief for the things that I lost. You know, I was going to be a police officer. I was going to do all of these things. I was going to be in the military. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And the one thing that I realized from a psychological component, I was 16 years old when I had my car accident, pretty spectacular car. I mean, I'm glad I didn't see it from the outside looking in because I remember being in the car and it was spectacular enough, but it's this spectacular car accident, all this trauma, two weeks in the ICU. I wake up three or four days later, I got tubes coming out of every hole that's in me and they made new holes to take tubes and stuck them in me. I had two drained tubes in my abdominal wall and my nose, catheters, I had a colostomy bag, which I didn't know what that was until I was fully coherent. I nearly died and nobody at any time said, kid, you know, you might have a bit of a problem with the fact that you just about died. Never talked to anybody about it. Nobody said, do you want to talk about, this? um, you know, this was fairly traumatic. Should we, you know, you do want to discuss it. I don't know if I would have, but it was never offered. And I carried all of that. You know, we talk about it a lot in pain, you know, trauma and how trauma underscores so much pain. I carried a lot of that with me for a while, thinking I was being tough and overriding it and pushing it away when, in fact, all I was doing was just stuffing it off into a corner. And it it would go into the corner. It would go fine, Meldrum, but I'm still here. And I'm going to come at you in different ways. So, <laughs> Yeah, wow. The um, we, we talk about how uh, we can push and fight pain itself and the you know unpleasant sensations and the experience that comes along with that. Uh, I think we often forget the stories with that pain, the the onset, the the regret, the harms, the memories, the associations as well on top of that. So there's so much more um, to appreciate from someone's pain experience and how unique that is. So uh, it's a lot extra to to manage along with the you know surface level pain self management. Right. There's also all the yep. stories, memories, the trauma associated with your experience. Okay. Um, and what have, what have you found helpful in, in the self-management? And I, I'm curious, um, yeah, what helped you the most and what would you have liked a bit more of back in the 
previous experiences with with healthcare well say from 2004 from that point just before the relaxation tape right yeah i i looking back on it now i um again i had lots of very good mechanical or biomechanical healthcare um interventions or interactions what i would have liked was somebody that would have connected with me as a person because all that time i was i i never felt like i was a human being i it was always always just somebody coming to the doctor and and often you feel like you're complaining and you know healthcare systems are very hierarchical um and despite you know some of the changes that are trying to be made in that it still exists today the minute you walk through that door you are less than there's the doctor and then there's you and you you're never really treated treated as a human being and what that misses is everything that we just talked about just a few minutes ago, Daniel, was that sort of totality of people's lives. So um, I really wish now there had been opportunities for somebody to talk to me about the effect of not only my pain, but sort of my accident and what my life was now compared to then. And just so we could have worked through some of these things so I could have better understood what I was fighting against. Because what I was doing, I was fighting against myself. And I didn't know that. I thought I was being so tough and strong. Um, and I was completely wrong. So that, and, and to me, that is still fundamental to this day. That's why we need to treat the person and not the collection of their symptoms. Um, so what worked for me best? Um, like I, I, to this day, I'm staggered still by how something like relaxation and breathing um, can help me. So since 2004, uh, and once I started to learn things like the breathing and the relaxation, those were two of the biggest ones for me and actually put them in practice. I would wind up going into the hospital sometimes a couple of times a year for breakthrough pain. And there would be these difficult conversations um, when I was married with my wife about like, do you want to go to the hospital? No. And I would say no, because mostly I didn't want to deal with that, uh, that interaction in the ER because you know, you're going to get it. You're going to get the looks and it's really, and they're going to leave you there for hours as you ride around until they do something about it. But you get to a point where you've got nothing else left. You're at the end of your rope. So then you, you put yourself through that dehumanizing, stigmatizing experience, which is traumatic. Um, once I was able to understand a little more about my pain, I've never seen the inside of an ER for pain control. I've had moments where it's driven me just to still to this day, I'll do something stupid and my pain will just go through the roof. But instead of off to the ER, um, especially if my wife's around, she'll work with me, but I've been on the floor, on my knees, tears in my eyes, and I've been able to get through that flare without having to go to a hospital because that's better for me, I think, than the alternative. So it, that just, and it hasn't happened a lot because I'm also getting better about not putting myself in those situations to create those flares. Um, but just understanding that I do have some control over my body and I there are things that I can do to help myself. And when it works, it just reinforces um, why, why it's important. So, you know, the breathing and the relaxation then led to um, movement because um, I've now learned and I'm a huge proponent for me, exercise, I, it's movement is important. Do what you love. For me, I have put together exercise routines and things that I can do that don't exacerbate my pain, but move my body. And probably as much of it is psychological it is is um as physical i feel so good my the endorphins are running i know i did it i feel locus of control um and i know my body needs to move the days that i'm starting to kind of feel the worst is the day i know i need to get off my butt and get in the gym and do something so <laughs> yeah wow the and, um the combination of all the the we'll talk about BPS, but like there's mm -hmm. the, the body's needs and, and meeting those needs. And then also the, yeah. the psychological, uh, how you feel from the movement, from the breathing, from the relaxation. Uh, and then the, the social element is fascinating. It's uh, not that we should trichotomize, but it's, it's like the, you have that support with your wife and the support around you. And uh, absolutely. There is that dehumanizing experience of the the other option so i guess that's a almost in a way motivating to keep self-managing so you don't have to go through the the er department and, and uh that that kind of traumatic experience again if you if you don't have to right um the number of people uh over the last 11 or 12 years that i've been doing this advocacy work the number of people that i've spoken to that have the same 
it doesn't matter what country you're in. Um, the, the the experiences are the same. Those um, those sort of critical flare up moments in the interface with the healthcare system. I can't think of any one person has ever said to me it's been a positive experience. They're they're uh, an experience by necessity because people don't know what else to do. They have nothing left. They just they're at their wits end, um, and they all tell the same story about the stigma and the and the dehumanization and either the outright you're just drug seeking or saying or the healthcare provider saying everything but that, but making it very clear that's what you're doing and just really reducing person, this person to something less than they are. So it is, it is a motivator. Um, I have a lot of respect for our ER and I will go there when I need to. I'm never going to not go, but I won't go for pain control unless I absolutely have to, because I can help myself. And, and I have to, you know, if I'm smarter, um, I can do uh, smarter things to not put myself in that situation. Yeah. yeah, so you have a sense of control, power over not only the flare-ups if they, if and when they do occur, but also mm-hmm. what, what kind of influences them now based on your understanding and gained knowledge and experience over the years. Right. Yeah. I think that's that's important for, for clinicians to respect and acknowledge and maybe focus on with, with some treatment approaches. How can we empower? The classic buzzword is empowering patients. And yeah. How can we do that yeah. so that you know they yeah. have some things that they can do for themselves when it gets to that stage yeah and Keith we've talked a little bit about um, humanity and and a person-centered approach and treating the person you mentioned that that was perhaps your pivotal moment of Mm -hmm. being treated and seen as a human Um, what are some of the 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 key uh, concepts that you'd like to share for clinicians to uh, to learn and and start uh, applying a bit more of a person-centered approach within that within the medical system that we operate within yeah, that's the toughest part, right? Because we we have to recognize that the current current healthcare systems worldwide are not designed for uh, person centered care. So, but that doesn't mean we don't try because change has to occur, and we do it a little bit slowly. So, one of the most important things that I would offer to any healthcare provider that's listening is to take the time to connect with the person. Um, you know, I've talked about it before, the number of times when I was um, in the ER or I would go for some sort of intervention, any kind of follow-up, everything from the room is cold, you know, like it's, you know, the environment is set up such that they're them and you're you, and they're going to make it very, and I don't think it's conscious, but subconsciously what comes across is there's a separation and I am more than you are, you are less than, than I am. Um, and then connecting with them as a, as a human being. Um like talking to them about how pain affects their lives. Um, we can talk about the reason and the need for uh, pain scales till the cows come home. And there might be some validity to it. I'm not sure what that might be. Uh, but I would suggest that it's more important to talk to somebody about how is their pain affecting them? Because, and now I'm going to get on the soapbox. So sorry, a little bit. Um, you know, the, the, the zero to 10 scale, right? You know, well, zero is no pain at all. And 10 is the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. The number of times I've been asked, can you rate your pain? Especially when I'm having a pain flare or anything like that. So in my mind, what goes through in a nanosecond is, um, well, I don't want to lie to them. So I want to be honest. 10 is the worst pain I've ever had in my life. Okay, fair enough. August 10th, 7.30 in the morning, 1986, I was ripped in half by a seatbelt and I was lying at the bottom of the bank bleeding to death. I can't describe that pain other than the fact I do know I was lying in the dirt begging to die. I did not want to live anymore. So that's the worst pain in my life. So in a 10, zero to 10, what, five? I like, I don't know if 10 is like, I'm done. I want to give up. How do I rate that? And so what you wind up doing as a patient then is, and you learn this, is what's the right answer? What answer do I give them so I get some treatment? Otherwise, they're going to say it's not that bad. So let's toss it out the window and say, how is this affecting your life? What is it not allowing you to do? What is it making you feel like? That's a lot harder because it's more involved than rate your pain on a zero to 10 scale. But until we start having those conversations one-on-one, Person to person, I will always respect the role of the healthcare provider. I, I don't think I don't think we're equals in so much as I don't have the knowledge and the education that they do, but they also don't have the knowledge and the education that I've gained over 37 years of my life. So let's let's come together and work on this. So 
Um, we need the healthcare system designed to allow that. They need more time. Uh, but I don't think it takes a whole lot more time to just be able to connect with somebody as a human being and, and have a conversation. Like I see you're having, like this is distressing today. This is causing a problem. You know, can we talk about that? And just because maybe the pain, and this kind of sounds weird sometimes, Daniel, like the physical pain, the physical sensation of pain. You know, right now I'm sitting here with my heating pad because it helps. And my neuropathic pain, which is burning and electrical, after a while, I can kind of like, I get it. I can deal with that. But it's all the other things that get associated with it that drive that pain. Maybe that's what the person needs to have a conversation about because that's really what's driving their pain. So, you know, I can't pay my rent today. I don't have any food in the house. All of these things. And, you know, can, will it open a Pandora's box for a doctor? Possibly, but that's what you're dealing with as a human being. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other option is to ignore the Pandora's box or pretend right. it's not there or, yeah. um, you know, just stay on that surface level. And I don't think it takes that long to ask, how are you? How are you doing? Like all those yeah. questions. Um, yeah. I, I feel like the, the time lack of time is a very real barrier in some mm -hmm. contexts and situations. And it's also um, a bit deeper than just actual objective time per session. I think there's always room in there to, to treat that person as a human, regardless of, how much time or how little time you have as well. Absolutely. Um, this is an example, and, and this just happened a couple of years ago, but it really reminded me again of some of the shortcomings that are inherent in the healthcare system. So um, two years ago, um, unrelated to my pain, I was diagnosed with a new thing. I have uh, something called mitochondrial disease, which is a rare genetic disease, which has got all sorts of issues with it. But it took a long time to get to... Um, to the diagnosis. And ultimately when I did through one of the specialist doctors who was very good because she, after, after I was passed from doctor to doctor very well, like I had so many people who looked at me and said, no, it was beyond my scope of expertise. And they moved me right along, get to the final doctor, have to have a muscle biopsy. Yes. Definitive diagnosis. So great. She was very good in getting me across the goal line. And then she says, and I don't think this is the way it was intended, but this is the way it comes across. I'm sitting in her clinic. And she said, Okay, so now I'm done with you. And um, my immediate thought was, nope, nope, <laughs> no. Like, actually, I'm done with you. And I went on my own, and I found another specialist in a different province who is not only um, a specialist in this disease, but he's a geneticist. And I transferred my care from that doctor to this one because... I'm not, she was, I'm done with you. I'll see you once a year. And I'm like, no, that's not how this works. Like we're in this together. So I don't think she intended that way, but the message I received was I'm out. So. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's uh, such a, yeah. Shocking experience again. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. The paternalistic kind of approach I think is uh, still embedded within the culture of a lot of our uh, medical healthcare world so i think that's a prime yeah. example and shows how important instead what we talked about that person-centered person approach and that co-creation and collaboration with the other human that, mm -hmm. like you said beautifully of uh we've got knowledge and we've got skills and we are we have expertise absolutely mm -hmm. in what we have expertise over but there's also another human who is the expert in their body and we don't know what it's like in their life or how the pain is affecting them so we can come in the in the middle through that space and that uh, space where there's hopefully some safety and facilitating that trust and that validation for two people to come together and make a plan together rather than yeah. I am the doctor, I'm above you, you are just the patient. Um, even within that language there, I think there's a bit of uh, uh, flexibility that we can have. Right. Yeah. To sort of to bookend that, because I don't want it to all be negative because I think things are changing um, to to show how it can work is um, one of my pain specialists for my um, my spinal cord implant, which is actually called dorsal root ganglion neuromodulation. But I was having a problem with the, there's something called an impulse generator, which is a fancy way of saying battery, <laughs> which is implanted in my back, which powers the electrical leads to my spinal cord. And I got this new system, which finally started to work a little bit better than the old system, but I was having some problems at the battery site. And last year um, I was dealing with one of my pain physicians and and like, well, I you know it could be this and it could be that. And, and, um, 
they they tried one thing and he's in a different city. He's the 700 kilometers away. So it's not like I can pop into his office and see him. So we're doing this. Actually, we're having a whole conversation via Twitter to tell you the truth. We're doing DMs and he's like, okay, try this. And he called in a prescription for me and I tried this thing and let's try it for 30 days. And I, I'm like, that doesn't work. And and so we're having the conversation again. And he's like, well, the next thing we can do is we can have you come down to the clinic and we can try these, these injections. And I, I said to him, you know, sure, Dr. Varshney, if, if that's what you think I, I can do it. But I said, I got to tell you the truth, the way I'm feeling, I think it needs a revision. I think it, it, something's not right. It needs to be revised. And he just came back and he said, almost, I quote almost, he's like, you know your body better than anybody else. Let's just move you to that. And um, actually, that was when a week later, they had a cancellation. They said, we can have you in in a week. And it resolved the issue that I had bookend that to my family physician when I was 19 saying it's all in your head and this other specialist saying I'm done with you and Dr. Varshini working with me and saying you know your body let's go ahead and do what you think is the right thing now if he would have said no and gave me all these medical reasons why I would have listened to him but he was like that was going to be a solution anyway we'll just get there so so yeah. we're, we are getting there we, slowly we're getting there <laughs> yeah the the huge cruise ship liner is slowly slowly <laughs> yeah i feel we're, we're getting there uh, Absolutely. it's helpful to hear yeah. these uh helpful positive examples as well to help see yeah. um what that might be like and what that might look and sound like so it's uh, yeah. that uh, meeting of two humans in there together um that i wanted to ask about some of the the skills and and from our conversation so far it seems like asking the right questions and framing certain consultations so the psych informed maybe human skills, uh, what do you feel uh, clinicians would, would benefit from learning when it comes to these, um, the, the human-centered approach and psychologically informed practice? What would they learn, like if that's what they were taught or? Yeah, if, if, um, if you were to uh, advise some clinicians on how to implement more hum- humanity into their practice mm-hmm. and, and more person-centered approaches, what kind of advice would you give? Um, not to be afraid, um, to, to have those conversations because it all comes back to, and again, I sound like a bit of a broken record, but fundamentally it comes back to the person that's sitting in front of them. So, um, don't be afraid to have that conversation to explore, uh, what's going on in the person's life is because when they've, they've come to you in, in a time of need or possibly crisis, they're probably at their lowest moment. Um, they don't need to be treated uh, like case number 72 of the day. Or I've heard stories of a good friend of mine, Joe Belton. Do you know Joe? She's um, she's an advocate as well. Anyway, Tim, we've presented before. Anyway, um, she um, once she was in the doctor's office and uh, the medical office assistant called out to the room to the doctor. Hey, doctor, so-and-so, your two o'clock hip is here. You know, people are not their pathology or their illness. So, so don't be afraid to treat people like people, you know, just to understand what's who they are and what's going on in their life and what they need at that moment. Um, sometimes people don't know what they need. You know, they, they come in, in a moment of crisis to see their healthcare providers and they're just lost. They've just, even if maybe they did have some basic um, self-management tools or some supports, but not enough, they're just done. They just don't know which way to go. And, so then to be further dismissed or stigmatized because the doctor's not even looking at them or willing to have a conversation with them doesn't help. So it, it's fundamental. That article I wrote, you know, we need to put humanity back in healthcare is simply focused on the fact that we need to treat the person. Like they're a human being. They're, we're not machines. We're not cars um, that you just take out one cog and replace it with another one. They're a human being with emotions and feelings and fears and stresses. And I realize that's a lot for a doctor to want to pop open that Pandora's box, but we're not saying you need to be a full-on psychologist, but you can be psychologically informed. You can understand what's going on in people's lives. And you, doctor, whoever might be listening to you, you can be the Dr. David Hunt that I had and be the, the, the person to change somebody's trajectory. If you just listen. I wanted to have a little bit more silence because that was a mic drop. Moment, I think that's so uh, understated, undervalued that that listening skill and um, the importance of 
treating the person maybe even like a family member or like a, a best friend, like a human, not just their pathology or, or what the clinical notes say, or not just yep. as a problem. They're a human with a very real problem. Yep, absolutely. It's, I mean, I think uh, you could probably go down rabbit holes with all that and get really, really deep into the psychology of it. But I think if the first thing that we can get healthcare systems to start to work towards on redesigning, and this goes right back to medical schools, you know, first of all, medical schools in North America um, don't uh, teach pain. They teach very little. Um, in Canada, I just read this stat earlier today, on average, some of the medical schools in Canada teach 20 hours in the entire curriculum. That's absurd. So let's start getting people right as they begin their education, you know, in their education career, let's start teaching these things then so that it just becomes, you know, sort of part of what they do when they move through their career. And for those that are well into their career, let's have these conversations about everything that you were taught where somebody's um, issue is purely biological, because all pain is biological. We agree, we understand, but it's informed by emotions and thoughts and stress and all these things. So it's okay to, to look back and say, maybe everything that I learned in medical school 20 or 25 years ago didn't have it right, because that's what knowledge and research is all about. And it's okay to have these conversations and don't be afraid to talk to people. They're, they're not, you might get some days where people just blah and spill out on you, but you really could be the, that person that um, turns the trajectory of their their life. So, yeah, you could be that Dr. Hunt, as you mentioned. Good. Yep. <laughs> Keith, really appreciate your time and, and sharing your experiences. For the listeners who are keen to hear more about you or your work or any advocacy work resources that you would recommend for clinicians, where can they go? Um, so the, so first of all, my work, so I'll plug myself. Thank you very much. I have this little blog. It's just on Facebook. It's, uh, not much, but that's where I go and put up my musing and thoughts usually at three o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep. Um, it's called the path forward. Um, and it's on Facebook and, um, I'd be happy if anybody wanted to pop in on there, you can follow me there. I'm on Twitter just under my own name. It's uh, Keith underscore Meldrum. And I put lots of weird musings and thoughts there. Um, for resources, most of the ones I know is are, are more North America wide, but there's a couple of organizations. One of the leading ones that's Canadian, but that has an international reach now is an organization called Pain BC. And it's actually an organization that when I first got into my advocacy work, I, I started, that was the first group that I reached out to. And they reached out to me and they said, yes, please join us. And seven years later, I finished my term as the vice chair of this um National, this 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 organization, and they're doing amazing work not only across Canada but also they have an international reach. They have resources for clinicians and people living with pain. They're a big into education um, for both provider and and people. So Pain BC has an amazing website. Um, anybody who's listening on April twenty eighth, there is the Pacific Pain Forum, which is happening. Uh, it's uh, in is happening in British Columbia, but it's an online event. Um, if you go to Pacific Pain Forum on the web, um, there's a whole day of education for both providers and uh, clinicians. And I just happened to be co-presenting with that doctor that I had the DM exchange on. He and I are co-presenting on the topic at that uh, at that conference. So, um, and um, there's there's a couple articles that I would love to plug that uh, I helped co-author. Uh, one is about. Um, uh, I did it with uh, Dr. Peter Stilwell uh, here in Canada um, and Dr. Uh, Timothy Weidman, and it's about um, uh, pain-related suffering. We looked at um, really um, Eric Cassell's work from this um, and and got into it a little more, and we talk about really what is suffering and can you suffer without pain and can you get pain without suffering. So um, that is uh, pain-related suffering. It's an open journal uh, article. Um and The Lancet, I co-authored an article on pediatric pain as a toxic stressor. So a couple of really interesting articles I got to work on. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And fellow countryman, uh, Pete, will be on our podcast this year as well. So keen to uh, continue. There's so much knowledge in, I feel, this part of, of Canada. I'm very jealous. I've met a few people at the Pain Summit in San Diego. And Excellent. it seems like it's that the BC area is where it's at. So. 
I'm very impressed with what's happening. I mean, I have to make sure I don't have a bias, but uh, when I do get a chance to travel and, and go into the U.S. or, or into Europe, and, and you mention sort of what's happening in Canada and some of the people are like, yeah, we've heard about it. So um, that just goes to show me that things are happening. There are definitely positives. And, um, you know, we, we need to learn from what hasn't gone well and then amplify the things that we're doing well now so we continue to do them better. Mm. Well said, Kate. Mm. That's it. Well, appreciate you sharing and, and I'm all for promoting all the work and I'll have all the Thank you. the notes as well, the um, where people can find you for this podcast episode on the show notes. Appreciate and it. thank you. Until the next time, Keith. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Daniel. It was great to have this chat. Mm-hmm.